Richard, where do you get most of your COVID-19 news? Well, Donovan, I try to make it a point to read what I consider accurate and comprehensive reporting. So the New York Times, specifically led by Donald G. McNeil. I like the Atlantic, led by Edward Yang. And when it comes to Canadian COVID-19 news, I follow the CBC as well as the Toronto Star. That list is pretty much chalk, what mine is. But how reliable would you consider that news? I consider that news very reliable because the people who are delivering the news, I trust. If I told you that one of the outlets you consider reliable used a viral tweet that contained false information as a source, would you stop going to them for news? Well, I'd have to look at the context in terms of uh, how that tweet was pushed out, but it certainly would give me a little bit of a hesitation heading forward. I ask because this scenario has become somewhat common during the COVID-19 pandemic, as many of the places we go to get our information, whether that's social media, print, or even major news outlets, are having to work that much harder to provide us with factual information. So why are we seeing so much misinformation and disinformation? Who can we trust? And how did we go from dealing with a pandemic to an infodemic? Rumors about emerging diseases can and do have real-world consequences. With so much information out there on social media, both accurate or not, it can be difficult to find trustworthy sources of information. And what the World Health Organization is calling an infodemic about the coronavirus is, they say, just as dangerous as the disease itself. False information about the virus itself has spread faster than the virus and has got into more people's lives and infected more people than the actual virus itself. And sometimes fake information comes from more traditional sources with political motives. This has really not been helpful in societies handling the deadly pandemic, only promoting greater fear and mistrust, questionable health advice, xenophobia, and even the hoarding of toilet paper. Kate Starbird is an associate professor in the Department of Human-Centered Design and Engineering at the University of Washington, and her research focuses on human-computer interaction and crisis informatics. Kate is also one of the greatest college female basketball players to ever come out of Stanford, and she joins us this week on the Sports on Pause podcast. You know, Donovan, this is uh, this is an interesting episode for us because we have some former athletes, really brilliant people, who have now injected themselves in the fight against COVID-19. Kate Starbird, of course, is a disinformation specialist, and I can think of no other time, certainly in my lifetime, where quality information is is so vital to all of us. And we'll also have Myron Roll coming up who is a neurosurgery resident at Harvard's the Massachusetts General Hospital and once upon a time was a terrific college football player and a Rhodes Scholar as well. So two former athletes who are doing some pretty extraordinary things in the battle against COVID-19. And normally in sports, when we're talking about misinformation, maybe, you know, someone got out that a player is off a team's draft board and that's not really the case. This is much more serious. Think about the week that we just had. Companies like Lysol had to put out statements saying that disinfectants will not help you cure COVID-19, that UV rays and disinfectant is not good. The FDA had to come out and say that using disinfectant is not, quote unquote, a game changer and that you shouldn't be digesting 
Tide Pods, all because of a statement made by the President of the United States. And I think you said you're going to test that, too. Sounds interesting. Right, and then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs. So it'd be interesting to check that so that you're going to have to use medical doctors with. But it sounds it sounds interesting to me. Who before, you'll remember, promoted that an anti-malaria drug could also be a game changer. It is known as a malaria drug and it's been around for a long time. And it's very powerful. But the nice part is it's been around for a long time. So we know that if it, if, if things don't go as uh, planned, it's not going to kill anybody. Turns out that wasn't true either. So conspiracy theories or promises of cures that aren't the case, they're not just things that we talk about and having no impact. They have real impact because they put people's lives in jeopardy. And even when they don't, they cause people to stress the health system that we're trying not to burden right now. So I think it's really important to have this conversation because of the serious impacts of spreading misinformation. So whether it's Kate Starbird, who's really doing the research about the spread of misinformation, or it's Myron Roll, who is seeing the impact in emergency rooms day to day, this will add a nice dynamic to the previous conversations we've had. And here's our interview with Kate Starbert. Kate Starbert is an associate professor in the Department of Human Center Design and Engineering and the director of the Emerging Capacities of Mass Participation Laboratory at the University of Washington. Her expertise is the study of how information communication technologies are used during crisis events. Her research examines how people use social media to seek, share, and make sense of information after natural disasters and man-made disasters. Most recently, her work has shifted, not surprisingly, to the spread of disinformation when it comes to COVID-19. For the people, obviously, who listen to this podcast, when it comes to sports, Kate Starbird at Stanford University was the 1997 National College Player of the Year. She held Stanford's scoring record with 2,215 points until 2008 when Candace Wiggins, another great Stanford player, came and passed her. Kate had a professional career where she played for the Seattle Reign of the ABL and then five seasons of the WNBA before she switched to academia. That is a really, really interesting uh, life journey. And we're pleased to be joined by Kate Starbird. Kate, uh, let's start here. Explain your research for us on disinformation and misinformation as it relates to COVID-19. Yeah, it's actually a hard question because we're just getting started with our research on COVID-19. We're looking both at the spread of misinformation, which can be unintentional, and uh, the spread of disinformation, which is intentionally misleading for some sort of objective, often a financial or a political objective. Currently, there's so many choices uh, because there's just so much misinformation spreading during COVID-19, and for very good reason. It's actually, in the wake of crisis events, excuse me, it's really common for people 
to try to make sense of what's going on and just come up with explanations that turn out not to be true sometimes. It was they're trying to just cope with the uncertainty of the event and COVID-19 has so much uncertainty that it's really not surprising to see the disinformation considering how politicized our information spaces are right now. You mentioned how politicized it's become. You know, in a address in February, the Director General of the World Health Organization said, we're not fighting an epidemic, we're actually also fighting an infodemic. How does that manifest itself? In what ways are we fighting against the issues of misinformation or disinformation? Oh, there's so many layers to this. I mean, one of them is just, we've got so much sort of what I call pervasive misinformation in online spaces and and disinformation and manipulation that people have lost trust in information. They've lost trust in journalism. They've lost trust in official organizations that we, we would need to turn to in times of crisis to get advice on what we should do. And so there's just layers to this. It's a perfect storm of sorts where, where COVID has a certain you know, characteristics of just so much scientific uncertainty hitting at a time where we have just a lot of distrust in the information that we see. I've actually been um, in some ways pleasantly surprised to see the amount of, of trust that people gave some of the early recommendations that made us able to make the right decisions. Here in Seattle, Washington, things did not look good on the 1st of March for Washington State. And people, you know, listened to our governor, they listened to the recommendations, they, they took actions that we socially distanced, and we actually kind of, you know, pretty much halted the, the infection rates here, and, and things are looking much better. And that's been surprised to me as a, as a researcher, because I've just seen so much distrust of information. So I was really impressed that people were able to do the right thing when the time came. Recently at a press address, you know, after the president said one thing, and Dr. Fauci had to get up, and say another. He was pushed by a media member on that topic and on, you know, no longer funding the WHO. And the president said to that media member, you know, you're fake. I heard that comment and I thought to myself, that's not that much different than addresses by the president three months ago. Were we getting to a stage where there was massive mistrust before and has COVID just add it on to that or is it worse now because we're in a crisis? This is a hard thing to answer because we just don't have the data yet. As a researcher, I'm like so used to relying on data to make comments like this. But I would say from my perspective, we've been in a situation where there's been a, a lack of trust in information systems where the term fake news was both used to describe, you know, false news and clickbait news and then was weaponized to use against uh, media that were critical of the government were changed in meaning or it was used in different ways. And so we've we've seen that and, and that builds like the sort of distrust in both government and media because we've got these different tensions. I've actually seen that in COVID, because it's life or death, both individually and sort of collectively with all these kind of impacts and most people want to get to the right information. They want to get through all of that crap and get to like, you know, what should I do right now? And so I think there, I've actually been pleasantly surprised. I mean, certainly we're seeing misinformation of all kinds spread and seeing it as problematic. But when you think about the larger discourse, I do see a lot of people that are trusting in the scientific experts that are the people we should be trusting in right now to help us make these decisions. And up until this point, I've actually been a little bit heartened to see some of the responses to misinformation from like the average person that I talk to or I see or in my network, even as I see some of the politicized disinformation begin to take root. And I actually think disinformation problem is going to get worse from here on out. But the rumoring and misinformation problem has actually been shrinking. And I think a lot of people are really trying to do the right thing. One of the biggest issues in misinformation and disinformation in the modern world is social media. You know, at one point, and it's a little bit of me sort of uh, 
making a filibuster here, but at one point, you know, social media was considered the great panacea of bringing worlds together, of um, providing information in closed societies that didn't have it. I think, unfortunately, what we've seen is it's maybe become one of the world's greatest tools when it comes to disinformation and misinformation. How does the role of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, et cetera, how do these networks play into misinformation? We've been actually looking at sort of where where misinformation and misleading information begins to hit the attention dynamics of online media ecosystems and social media sort of influencers pick it up and and selectively amplify things that align with their their goals or objectives or that they think or make them into bigger influencers or whatever. But we look at the dynamics of how these social media platforms work, how this the social networking piece causes some information to be more visible how the recommendation systems work within all of that. And we've been watching some of, you know, some misleading stories and seeing how they go through, you know, the who's who of social media influencers to, you know, this little piece of information from a person who had 2000 followers, all of a sudden it's got a hundred thousand retweets. The person now has a hundred thousand followers. They've now become an expert in COVID and everybody's listening to them. And what happened was they just got amplified by some social media influencers. uh, And actually they're spreading misleading information. And we've been watching some of those dynamics. We've also been watching dynamics where social media influence intersects with influencers in other political and other media ecosystems like uh, cable news networks and to see how the information goes back and forth between the cable news networks and social media and how cable news personalities become influencers in the social media platforms. And to actually see these things as sort of intertwined, we can no longer say, okay, uh, that's the online world or that's in social media. These are The information is all intertwined uh, and it moves from place to place. Uh, and social media platforms have a huge shaping force on all of the information that we see, whether we're reading it in a newspaper, seeing it on the cable news, or seeing it in our Twitter feed. Uh, these information flows are shaped at many levels by social media. We have a term in the traditional media, a phrase, when it bleeds, it leads. Mm-hmm. And certainly there's a rubber necking effect of when there's something negative, for whatever reason, people start to pay attention, sadly. The sociology of disaster, how does that impact the information that people are seeking and how they believe or don't believe it and what the relationship is with that information? try to unpack that that question a little bit but online spaces we have sort of attention dynamics of things that are sensational we have clickbait right like things that are sensational that uh, spark an emotional reaction are going to spread further and get more attention get more likes and retweets and everything else with covid that's intersecting with a highly emotional time in the sense that we're we're all afraid there's fear uh, there may be anger at uh, entities for maybe doing the wrong thing. There's a lot of un- anxiety of like, what can we do? What should we do? And so those emotions are, are stirred. So we're already like engaging in these spaces. A lot of us are turning to these spaces to try to alleviate our anxiety. And they're just ending up making us more fearful and more anxious because the information that we end up seeing is filtered through these like, attention dynamics, which means that the most fear-inducing and anger-inducing stuff is the stuff we're most likely to see. And so we're almost in this in this cycle of trying to resolve our anxiety, but actually just feeling more and more anxious as we turn to these information spaces due to the ways that these different dynamics are at play. Kate, there's a uh, there's a tweet on Twitter that has always stayed with me, and it stayed with me since this person sent it out in December of 2016. It's from Gary Kasparov, 
who um, at one time was um, the world chess champion, but has since gone on to be political reformer in Russia and a pretty big mm-hmm. standout voice when it comes to sort of anti-authoritarianism. Kasparov uh, said this, the point of modern propaganda isn't only to misinform or push an agenda, it's to exhaust your critical thinking, to annihilate truth. That always stays with me. And so it leads me to ask you, what as lay people can we do to help curtail misinformation and disinformation? Such a great quote and such a great way to understand this. It's it's aligned with some of the ways we've been explaining the effects of disinformation on sort of society at large, especially sort of pervasive and ongoing disinformation. When we engage with information, we've been taught ways of critical thinking and trying to make sense of it. But as that quote points out, some of this stuff is designed to overwhelm, to take advantage of, co-opt and overwhelm our capacities for critical thinking. And so one of the things that we've been taught is to be skeptical of information. And the problem is, is that if you take that too far, you get to a place of not trusting anything. And at a time like COVID, it becomes all too obvious that we need to be able to find trusted information in order to take actions that are going to protect ourselves and our communities. And if we don't trust anything, that just doesn't work. And then we're in a state of inaction, right? Because we can't figure out necessarily what to do. What I encourage people to do is not to go into an information space thinking about, okay, how do I undo everything and how I can't trust this, but to kind of engage in a way of like, now, how do I find the sources that I can trust, the voices that I can trust? When I think about platforms, how do they create better experiences that help people find information they can trust? When I think about educators, how do we teach people to do a better job of figuring out who they should trust? Uh, And that for everyone, it's not going to be the same answer. And I don't think necessarily that it should be. But I think it's really important that we're not just trying to foster more and more skepticism, but that we're trying to foster trustworthiness and trust in how we engage in information. It's not a simple thing, but I would just kind of encourage people to find the sources that that they can trust and, and to think about, in this case, you know, who's going to know best about something where there's so much scientific uncertainty, they're just trying to figure things out. We're trying to understand it. And what, who are the experts in responding to a pandemic right now? And for me, that's, you know, Dr. Fauci, it's the scientific experts in some of these organizations that are dedicated to responding to pandemics and epidemics. And that's who I'm turning to, to try to figure out what to do, as well as the local media who are reporting on things that are happening in my neighborhood, which is is affecting the kinds of things that I can do and the the kinds of things that might affect my family. Often being misinformed only really impacts yourself, but this is a scenario where whether it's you know believing that minorities don't get it or whether you should or shouldn't wear a mask or the dangers or non-dangers of 5G or anti-vaxxers, lots of the information that people are consuming and thus the choices that they're making or not making will impact the people around them. For people who are having trepidation on how much of this information they should consume as a responsibility to everyone else, but also how much they can afford to consume because it is not the most positive of subjects. What would you tell them in terms of navigating that? Yeah, I actually tell people to maybe consume less information overall, especially in this this early period, which has been a long early period of an event. And you can watch the information come in all day, but you're not going to learn anything new that's important for you in the next five seconds or the next five hours that you wouldn't learn if you got it tomorrow morning. And actually, I don't think it's healthy to be just constantly taking this information in. So this is the the advice I give, but don't always take, but that is to like consume a little bit less, you know, say, okay, I'm going to do an hour 
of information gathering today. And whether it's half an hour in the morning, half an hour in the afternoon, but that's it. And the other times I'm gonna, you know, do other things with my time. I think it's really important that we kind of put those boundaries on ourselves because it's really not a healthy environment to be in online. And this is not even with, take COVID out of the situation. It's not good to be in some of our information spaces for long periods of time right now. So I think it's really important that we do have enough time to get the information that we need, but also that that we're engaging um, in ways that are gonna be healthy for ourselves. And at the at the same time, if you're only gonna go on for a little bit of time, then, then maybe you should have a plan of the kinds of sources of the kind of places that you wanna go. The best information gathering I've done for sort of informing my own actions and my the, the actions that my family's taken has really been around reading the local news. Uh, the Seattle Times in particular has been really great uh, early in this uh, crisis event and this pandemic, giving us information that was really valuable uh, especially around my parents who are in an elder living facility, not the one that was affected, but one that, you know, they're all vulnerable. It was really important for us to have sort of this local media outlet that we could trust that was giving us, you know, information that was so relevant to our lives. Well, I think it was Francis Bacon, although many people have probably taken credit since that said knowledge is power. Well, on a subject like this, your knowledge given to us on the dangers of misinformation was certainly powerful. Uh, if people want to stay educated on how they can avoid misinformation, at Kate Starbird is the follow on Twitter. She is the Associate Professor of Human-Centered Design and Engineering at UW, Researcher of Crisis Informatics and Online Rumors. Thank you so much for this information, Kate. Thanks for having me on. Well, our thanks to Kate Starbird, who is focusing on Donovan, something that I think is just incredibly important in 2020, and that's how to become a smarter news consumer. I think, Richard, smart is the operative word. In the last 48 hours, I was sent a YouTube video that says that drinking fresh cow urine will be a cure to COVID-19, right? And this is all in a time when at the University of Sherbrooke, there's a study that shows one out of 10 Canadians believe COVID misinformation between the ages of 18 and 44. So this is not an issue that's in a specific country. This is an issue that takes place all of the time. And that's why I actually want to hear and understand from someone who's really smart, what is going on in our hospitals and what we should actually be doing to take this problem a little bit more serious than we are. Myron Roll is a Rhodes Scholar. He's one of the smartest athletes you'll ever come across. And I was thankful he gave up some of his precious time to join me on the Sports on Pause podcast. Good morning, everyone. It's Dr. Myron Roll, 5.45 a.m., Tuesday morning. Walking into Mass General Hospital. Several buses here to help us in. Workers to fight the effort against COVID-19. And I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Myron Roll, third year neurosurgery resident at Mass General Hospital, part of Harvard Medical School in Boston. And Dr. Roll, 10 years ago, you were a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, getting a master's degree in medical anthropology. I'm sure at that time you weren't thinking you were going to get ready for a situation like this. What has this been like for you? Yeah, no, I certainly would not have predicted uh, that I'd be uh, volunteering myself for our surge clinic, this hospital within a hospital here at Mass General Hospital, to take care of patients who come off the street with COVID-19 or analogous symptoms. 
Uh, I didn't expect that I'd be, you know, not doing as many brain surgeries and spine surgeries because our hospital is uh, using the resources available in the operating rooms to disperse around the hospital as far as masks and personal protective equipment and even turning the ORs into ICUs. Uh, our hospital has been completely transformed with no visitors anymore. Our neurosurgical floor has been turned into a COVID-19 only floor. So the day-to-day operations that I typically would have gone through are vastly different. And it's all done in response to the heavy surge and influx of patients that we're seeing, particularly here in Boston, Massachusetts. So someone who is in neuro, your days normally would be brain tumors and spine surgeries and herniated discs. What are your days like now as you're doing two days that are far different than the ones you did as a football player? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So my days now are still have neurosurgical patients on our service that are either positive with COVID-19 or maybe are being ruled out at this point and tests are waiting to come back uh, and even a second test to make sure that it's a true positive when they are tested. So these are patients that we have to gown up for, put on all the personal protective equipment, make sure that we're um, you know, not spending more time in the room than we really need to. Going in and doing one exam, one person in the room instead of five or six that would typically round with us on a day-to-day basis, uh, calling the right services, infectious disease, medicine, our bio threats team, getting the right scan, CT of the chest or chest x-rays, getting the right labs, uh, getting the right tests done, making sure that these people are isolated and have the right precautions. You know, it's a lot that goes into it. And again, like, like you mentioned, certainly different than the neurosurgical disease burden that we'd be dealing with on a day-to-day basis. But as football has taught me, you have to be able to a- adapt and adjust on the fly, make in-game changes. And that's what we're doing right now, basically. Me and my colleagues, we've all taken this mindset, this ideology that we're medical doctors first, put aside our priority, which is obviously doing the thing we're passionate about, neurosurgery, and just joining this hospital-wide fight of fighting COVID-19. You mentioned that football analogy, and I think it's a good one, adapting on the fly. But certainly in sports and in football, you have a base set of principles, an offense, a defense, and you may tailor things based on down, distance, situation, opponent. It seems like, given the information that we're hearing, that the entire offense or defense changes from day to day based on what you're learning. What's that been like having to radically adjust how you approach these things from a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been challenging. There's no question. And that's why communication, communication, communication is so important. It was important on the football field, regardless of you know where we were on the field, what kind of momentum was going on, what time of the game it was. And if it was too loud in the stadium, we'd find ways to communicate because you have to. Everybody has to be on the same page. Everybody has to be knowing their assignment and playing their role, playing their responsibility. If you have two guys in the A gap and no one in the B gap, then that's just a recipe for disaster. And so in this instance, our communication, I think, has been top of the line at this hospital. I mean, we have our department head, our uh, CEO, our president, our chief nursing officer, everyone just communicating with us daily about what's new, what's next, what to expect, keeping us up to date, even if there have been a, a flurry of requests from employees about hazard pay or about staying local for, uh, for the employees that live very far away, maybe staying in a hotel nearby because they're having these long shifts, you know, whatever they can, our hospital has been really, really good at being uh, communicative and keeping us abreast as to what's new, what are the new changes. And once you know that, and once everybody's on the same page, you can at least have a collective effort towards 
your ultimate goal, which is treating these people and making sure that they're taken care of. We expect police officers and firefighters to risk their lives for others. It's part of the rules of engagement of the occupation. That's not generally the case for surgeons or nurses or operating room attendants and porters and hospital security. What we're asking you to do now, does it scare you? Yeah, it does not scare me. And that doesn't, I'm not saying that with you know, a level of conceit. I'm saying that in the sense that I leave my downtown apartment and go to work. I can walk to Mass General Hospital. It's not very far. And I walk back home. And I do that over and over again. And I stay in this lane. I stay in this zone. I stay in this focus of this is what we're called to do. And this is a very trying time. And if people who are sick have a place to go, the place they're going is to the medical professionals. And I'm proud to be a part of this community uh, of wonderful nurses and doctors and pharmacists and, and thinkers, leaders who are trying to do that, to do their best to thwart this, this um, emerging and surging infection that we have going on in this country and around the world. It's a global team that um, I'm proud to be a part of. I was a part of the Florida State Seminoles and the Tennessee Titans and the Pittsburgh Steelers. These were great teams and I have lifelong friends, but this is a medical team that I'm a part of now that is great. And so keeping those things in mind, it doesn't give me the opportunity, the time to think about anything else other than placing a premium on these patients and doing the best we can. When Hurricane Dorian hit my home country, the Bahamas, I didn't think about the water being, you know, full of cholera. I didn't think about the rusty nails could potentially give me tetanus. I didn't think about the lack of electricity or, you know, some of the other dangers that could have been um, waiting for me when I went home. I said, I have to do this. This is my home country. I'm a doctor who can help. Let me go head down, face first, get the job done. Again, parking some of my football days, but it's something that I, I love doing and I'm passionate about. And this has given me the purpose in life that uh, I think God has set out for me. Part of our normal life is sports. It's a big part of it. Donald Trump recently was on a call with the commissioners of respective leagues. There have been scenarios floated out about leagues starting up entirely in a biosphere, entirely quarantined and allowing those leagues to play before the rest of population is back to normal. You have experience being a professional athlete and also now in the medical world. Are scenarios like that realistic and possible before we have a widely dispersed vaccine? I think that's ambitious. I really do. And I'm not sure. I'm really not sure if the agenda and the motive is right. If it's to get these leagues playing again because you want to uh, you know, provide some uh, opportunities for these players to exercise their abilities and showcase their talents in this short window that we know that sports has for people. Then I'm 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 okay with that because you know I I was an athlete for sure and you know there was a short a short window to play and when you're you know optimally trained and you're ready to to focus and get to do the thing that you're passionate about and you've loved for your whole life uh, you want to display that you work very hard to get to this point and it's your it's your chance but if it's for some monetary value or some gain some commercial interest um, then that is um, you know something that I think we need to sort of reconsider I feel like just a personal opinion and looking at some of the stats and being here uh, in the hospital, in this healthcare facility, in this world, once the trends go down, once we're able to start consistently see stats go down, deaths go down, infected patients go down, the number of hospitals, you know, requiring ventilation machines or oxygen support, seeing the hospitals now open up to other patients, taking them in, 
seeing the spaces that were once reserved for COVID-19 be returned to their normal functions again. Once we see, we can use hospitals as a barometer, once we see these things happen, then I think we might be able to make a move towards getting these games back going, maybe start gradually, don't have fans there, and then eventually move with fans. And But if you're trying to go prematurely, like in a week or two weeks or a month or something like that, I think you could be placing a, a high risk on, on some of these uh, athletes who are going to be in a very communal setting and they could end up having just a nidus for infection just being around each other like that. So it could be difficult. It's something that we really need to reconsider and place a premium on the health rather than just starting back sports so quickly. The interesting thing is we've seen numbers escalate in different parts of North America at different times, but yet for sports to come back, we probably need them to go down everywhere. As we're recording this now, there are still nine states in the U.S. who don't have social distancing guidelines. Based on what you're seeing day-to-day, some of the tough scenes that you're witnessing, if you could impart a piece of wisdom to those governors in those states, what would you tell them? Well, first I'd say I'm not a politician, uh, so you shouldn't be listening to me specifically um, for your guidelines because there's probably people brighter than me that know uh, what to say. Uh, but what, what I would say is that from a medical side of things uh, and, and from just somebody who has interest in the community and wanting to see us you know, win and succeed, um, that these uh, numbers, these stats that you're seeing in the hospitals are real. These are real people with real situations happening with families that are being affected um, with end of life and goals of care sorts of discussions. It's very, very challenging. Um, and so our, our way of sort of fighting this fight on, on all fronts, not just from a medical side, uh, but also from just the, the normal day-to-day person who um, has life has been disrupted uh, by COVID-19, uh, the way to do it is to social distance yourself by slowing down this curve, flatten this curve, and give time. Time is the probably the utmost important thing at this point. Giving epidemiologists, scientists, PhDs, pharmacists, all these wonderful minds, intellectual giants, the time to figure out a cure, a vaccine, proper management guidelines, preventative measures for in the future so it, can, it won't happen again. Everything that's necessary to get over this. Uh, and so, yes, it's a two-part approach. Us, what we're doing right now in the hospital and the rest of the world, playing their part, playing an active role, and really buying in to this team aspect of the United States and even on a global level. I want to end on a note, piece of advice that you would always get from Bobby Bowden. Bobby Bowden was known for giving great speeches before the teams went into battle at Florida State. Is there a piece of advice that you got from him that is not just applicable to the game of football, but is applicable to the battle that we are all facing right now? Yeah, Coach Bowden was uh, and is an amazing man um, who, yes, gave amazing speeches in his Southern drawl. Just very charismatic, very charming. Uh, it's very Christian-oriented. One of the reasons why I chose Florida State is because his, his faith was so, so strong, and, and uh, I like to think that mine is as well, and I developed it under him as well. But one thing he always told us was to make decisions on the football field with your teammates and even in life that not only benefited you but also behooved the people around you. So a rising tide would lift all boats. If you make a decision uh, for the betterment of others, um, while making it, you know, to sort of you know, advance yourself, it's it's all going to be good. Everybody wins, and that's what you ought to do. If you're eating the right food and you're staying away from you know, clubs or drugs or alcohol or things like that, then you're not only keeping yourself healthy, but you're also placing yourself in a position where you're able to be a valuable member of the, the team so that you're able to contribute, and that's going to help the team. So everything is done 
with a team, team, team first mentality. And I've taken that approach here in residency. Uh, my colleagues have adapted that as well uh, without even being coached by Bobby Bowden, but it's a great sentiment, a great uh, advice to just live by, uh, that there's other people around you that need your support and uh, the decisions you make, the hard decisions, whether you go to Oxford or go to the NFL, go to Oxford because you can be an inspiration and role model for people and they can come up behind you and say, yeah, I can be a road scholar too because here's this kid, uh, Bahamian, um, you know, Bahamian heritage who grew up in America who was a road scholar. I can do the same thing. That's very fulfilling and very rewarding. Well, I have to commend you and all of your colleagues for everything that you are doing and continuing to do selflessly. And I think the word when I think of you is, is sacrifice. You skipped your senior season at FSU to chase your medical dreams. You, you lost status in the draft because you were at Oxford, you know, bettering yourself. And so from someone part of the football community, uh, I'm proud of you. And I'm also really proud that you're now part of the medical community and doing great work. Thank you so much and stay safe. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Richard, what sticks out to me about that is not the fact that Myron Rule was one of the best football players in the world, and now he's doing something that's really important for the entire world. It was the urgency in his voice at the end telling people that this problem is really, really serious. And that's one of the reasons why we like to give people something that they can consume to wrap their head around this problem. So for our last word, what did you come across this week that you found interesting? Well, I'll give you one, Donovan, and then pass it on to you. There was a, uh, a brilliant piece, I thought, by Thomas Lake of CNN, in full transparency, a former Sports Illustrated colleague of mine, who wrote about an innocent man who spent 46 years in prison and had made plans to kill the man who framed him, but opted not to. So I'd urge you to read that piece, Thomas Lake, CNN. And the COVID-19 tie-in there is a section on um, the coronavirus and prison. And one thing I will also recommend is the Marshall Project, which is an online site that focuses on life in prisons. And uh, it's done a number of pieces on just COVID-19's impact on the North American prison system. That's very interesting, Richard. I will be sure to bookmark it and check it out. Two things for me that I think people should check out uh, is one, Anderson Cooper did a times funny at times cringeworthy at times alarming interview with the mayor of las vegas about reopening las vegas obviously we know the nfl draft just happened and it was not in las vegas and it is quite alarming how out to lunch some of our public officials are because i know when you have a disease you have a placebo that gets the water and the sugar and then you get those that actually get the shot we would love to be that placebo side so you have something to measure against so all you, the data and you want to get the placebo you don't want to get the actual well, no, the group who gets the placebo by the way usually gets the short end of the stick um well you don't know how do you know when you are in part of let that me just group say, you are mayor, <laughs> mayor if <laughs> Go watch it. It was from last Thursday's episode. But speaking of reopening things, there's a piece in the New York Times by Matthew Futterman. And the headline is, Canada will have a big say on the return of major sports in the U.S. Oftentimes we talk about 
you know, local officials, federal officials, and what's going on in the United States. And I think we forget that these leagues, they're often in two different countries and they're both tied together. So give that a read when you're thinking of return to play. That's it from us this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please like, favorite, subscribe, share, and more importantly, stay safe, take care of yourself and others.